Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So today we wanted to dive a little bit into the weeds, um, go all the way down the stack, you know, as, as you kind of, you know, if, if you were drawing one of those silly, what is it, OPML? No, yeah, there's a fancy name for the, the those kind of charts that you learn about in school, but they never actually draw uh, ever again. How do you not know this? I mean, I don't know what you're talking about, but I figured you were the master of charts. You should know this. Well, it's not a chart. It's it's it's, it's like drawing. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at drawing, but you know, like you all the way down chart? to the bottom. Well, I'm thinking of the one. You know, you go all the way down. And there's like it's, it's the the database was always that cylinder um, <laughs> that you would draw. I don't know why it was a cylinder. Like, is this back from the days when you had tape discs or something? It was that, probably to represent like a hard disk. Maybe so. You have you if, if when you draw your you know your infrastructure diagram, you always end up in the back with a little cylinder, and that's your database. And it's you know an important part of uh, of applications in, in you know in, in certain ways. But I think the role that persistence has played, and even as you just noticed there, I switched from using database to persistence. Um, is the way in which we think about storing data to then get back later has certainly evolved um, over the last you know eight the last eight years of, of iOS and of the App Store. And I think it seems something that's worth getting into because there's such a variety of approaches that you can take for this, where you go all the way on the one extreme to things like raw SQLite. You can then take wrappers around SQLite. You can have things that are like core data using SQLite, um, which are, or Realm or all kinds of other kind of middlemen that are wrapper, like very sophisticated wrappers. You can start to get into systems where you have your own persistent system um, that is writing, you know, files to disk. You can start to get into just using NS user defaults um, and keychain and, you know, very lightweight things. And then you can go all the way to the other extreme of having no persistence at all. Uh, and I know of a variety of apps that are entirely unpersisted that they, you know, other than if, other than like a user token, the app is entirely unpersisted and you can, that flexibility is I think in many ways, a, a direct result of the increasing capability and connectivity of the devices that we're writing apps for, um, where I think if you imagine an app as this thing all on its own, it's going to need a fairly sophisticated persistence system because that is where the apps, you know, it needs to be able to function on its own and needs to be able to do it in a way that, you know, if we're back in the day when you only had a 3G connection connected to your iPhone, you really couldn't expect um, the user to be able to download information very often. So it has to be fairly self-contained. Whereas you can imagine now there's certain kind of applications that are essentially just a just displaying a json blob to the user and maybe the data is complete is in some ways also it's time sensitive it's it's it, you know it, it showing the data that you had cached a week ago would be kind of irrelevant um, so say for example like a weather app um, is an example of an app i've written that has essentially no persistence because the app the da- app's data is completely useless um, but I think it's an interesting thing to think about where we... <laughs> I, hi, I'm David Smith. My app's data is completely useless. Hey, you know, sometimes <laughs> it, it's useless. I'm saying it's useless as soon as it's, uh, as, as soon as it's old. Yeah, it's immediately out of date, basically. It's immediately out of date. <laughs> it, it's necessary. Like as soon as I have the weather, uh, weather um, I, I, you know, my, my blob of weather data, it's, it's already starting to get out of date and, and fall out. 
Um, but anyway, uh, getting back on, on my train of thought, the other thing that has, has made persistence, I think, so interesting now is the rise of extensions. And this is something that I've been struggling with a lot this summer um, of trying to keep all the various parts of our applications in sync. So uh, Pedometer++, for example, has a iPhone app. It has a widget extension. It has a watch extension, which is actually two parts. One of them is just the UI and the other part's the actual watch extension. It has a Siri kit extension and it has an iMessage extension. And so I have five different sort of things that I have to keep data in sync now that isn't syncing to a server, that is just syncing locally. And so persistence is a really interesting and tricky problem now. And I think what I find myself typically doing now is I'm trying to simplify as much as I can my persistence like to a point that essentially most of my persistence now is just dictionaries and you know sort of having these blobs of data that I can very easily and move around in a very lightweight way because I need to get data so that you know when the watch app updates its step count that watch that step count needs to via watch connectivity find its way down into my phone which needs to find itself into the into the iPhone app. It needs to find its way into the iMessage app. It needs to find itself into the widget so that everything can stay in sync. And so having some big heavyweight persistence scheme that you know is doing some kind of really heavy database oriented you know transactional things or things, which just doesn't just doesn't work. It's too heavyweight. And so I'm starting to more and more just shift myself away from that into dictionaries and that kind of stores. And so far, I found that to be pretty pretty effective. Um, have you had to run into any of these kind of problems with Overcast in terms of keeping various parts of the app in sync? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, I, I've kind of gone the opposite direction as you over the years. Well, sort of. So so with you know with Instapaper early on, I was just using raw SQLite API in C because I thought this I thought the speed and performance would matter. And maybe at the time it did, you know, back that was back on the iPhone one. So it might have mattered back then. Um, I've I've slowly moved first into using uh, FMDB uh, and then later on uh, building on top of FMDB my own FC model system, which is kind of a, a, a lighter weight than core data persistence layer built on top of SQLite. And in the mean, like in for different apps that that were not like my big app, things like the magazine uh, and and uh, Bugshot, like, like I've used different things there, either no persistence or in the case of the magazine, I first started out with just using a bunch of plists that I would just write to disk, and having like dictionaries in plists is enough for a lot of apps, and and you know as as you mentioned, kind of going towards that kind of area with with a lot of your apps, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, to just having very simple dictionaries in files. There's a lot to be said to that. The the setup cost, uh, like the the amount of effort it takes to to start working on that, is extremely low. The amount of complexity in the app is extremely low. Um, the the bug potential in most cases, but not all, is extremely low. And so they're really, and it's also just really fast. Like there's a lot to be said for that. However. When you go to the the more sophisticated database-backed systems, things like core data, um, then you get a lot. Like you know, you you view it as as heavy or as maybe like over-designed for your needs, depending on what your needs are for the particular app. But database systems give you a lot for free. That if you are using a file-backed system or like you know, like a more of a manual or simple system, that you have to either go without and hope it doesn't, it doesn't bite you. Or you have to write it yourself, 
which is probably not a good idea. Um, so that, you know, things like concurrent access to the same file, not corrupting the data, uh, thing, things like in your extension contexts, um, having the data be able to be updated by one process and then notifying the others that are that might be accessing at the same time, notifying them of the changes. Um, it, there are things like this that that the the good persistence layers will do already for you. You don't have to write it. Um, and if you use them even for simple tasks, it might be worth getting those features. Um, now, now, they do bring complexity for sure. Um, you know, core data, I, I'm not a huge expert in core data because I only used it uh, for basically the second half of the magazine after I stopped using my PLIS system. Uh, so I, I used it very little and not recently. So all this with a grain of salt. But there are obviously complexities. There's things like concurrent access from different threads that you have to really be careful with. Although, again, same thing. You know, you have to be careful when you're writing files too. Um, there's things like uh, dealing with schema migrations that that a lot of these layers do not make easy. Um, possible crashes, like if the user if if this if the migration fails on an upgrade or whatever else, or the database gets corrupt. A lot of apps uh, can't or don't handle that very well. Um, so you know, there's there's lots of complexity if you if you take on some of the bigger systems that you have to deal with. But I would posit that in most cases, for most apps, um, if you're if you're doing things like extensions or concurrent threads in in one app, you probably want those big systems because they will take care of problems that you would have to worry about if you were doing it yourself with plists and stuff uh, in your own app. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it, it it is such a interesting tension that I feel like you find with these types of questions. Where, like, the thing that I hate. One of the things I really don't like when I'm developing an app is whenever I make a decision that is setting me on a path where it will be difficult difficult to change down the road. Um, you know, so it's like if I go file a new project in Xcode and it says like, would you like to you know check the box to use core data? <laughs> now, obviously, that checkbox itself it's a big is, decision. Not, is is not the like I can obviously take it out or put it back in later. But conceptually, like I agonize over whether I'm going to push that button. Because it feels like I'm setting myself, I'm, I'm making a choice that has a lot of implications down the road, and it's like I'm, it's, it's like I'm choosing which, like which adventure I'm going to be going on. Am I going to be going on the core data adventure of finding weird threading issues uh, and dealing with merging in the background? Which, whenever I've done core data and I've done a lot of core data, like that seems to be the adventure you're on, where the bugs you're going to have are related to that. Um, or am I going to go down the road of some, like a lighterweight file-based solution where my bugs and issues are going to be sort of cache invalidation or freshness, um, those types of issues? Like I, I'm just like choosing which one I'm doing. And really awkward is any, if, any, if, you, if your app involves any amount of user data, as soon as you kind of have that first version out in the world, you suddenly you are going to be responsible for maintaining that you know, like in, in some ways indefinitely, not truly indefinitely, but you either do then have to start dealing with like, well, if I ever, if I ever change my mind and want to do something different, I'm going to have to build some kind of big migration. I'm going to have to test it like crazy. And I'm going to have to work really hard to make sure that I don't break any user's data because the, the, you know, like that's the nature of persistence. You're trying to take something, put it on your phone and have it last uh, indefinitely. And so I really hate these kind of these kind of decisions that we have to make in development where it's not just like oh you know core data isn't really working out for me right here i think i want to go to sqlite let me just do that it's like well there goes three months of my life um transitioning from 
you know, pulling the data out and switching it into something else. And that kind of a heavyweight decision, I think, is so awkward. And also, it's probably also a fair thing to say that I think it is good to have the awareness that because these decisions tend to have such high switching costs, the discussion about uh, which one you should use, you know, so if you are talking online or you're reading documentation or blog posts about these things, people often become very passionate about them. You know, it's the old Vi Emacs kind of uh, problem where you become very passionate about your thing and very defensive of it because the thought of having, if someone else is actually correct, you know, in terms of, oh, something, some new persistent scheme comes out that is, you know, objectively better than what you, what you have and what you've been using, um, you have a problem and you have a serious problem and you have this weird issue that you kind of then feel bad about. And so you, you know, discussions with this are always kind of tinged in that way. And so it's just a good disclaimer to kind of talk about because, because it's just such a high switching cost, you can't just be like, yeah, hey, you know, maybe I will use that. You know, maybe I will drop this and switch to that. Like I've done migrations like that where I've gone from one kind of data system to another. And it is usually like that is the worst part of my job ever. And I try as best I can to once I make the choice, it's like I'm just going to go with it and I'm just going to do the best I can. Like I have a recipe book manager, which is even which is the most terrifying of my persistence needs because people are literally putting like their family recipes, you know, I, you know, things that are, are very emotionally important to them into my app and they expect them to be there. And I've had issues where, you know, I do a bad data migration uh, in core data, which is what I use for that app. It's like, I do a bad data migrate, a bad data migration and it's corrupted, you know, corrupt some recipes. And it's like, that is terrible. And so you have to, be really thoughtful about these kinds of things. And I think in some ways my more, mo like as I go forward, I'm getting less and less, uh, wanting more and more lightweight things. It's like, I'm almost in some ways trying to make fewer and fewer promises and trying to do less with my less, less have fewer situations where I am really responsible, uh, inside of my app code for taking care of something that's important to somebody that as soon as I can, like in my, in my recipe book now, um, I have a free sync. I added a free sync system to it that takes all the essentially it's, but it's really, I call it sync. Most people just use it with one app. It's just backup. Yeah. And so I have like a live backup of all their user data out, uh, out, out into a database that I can keep for them so that I now, when I have weird things happen to users devices and the persistent scheme goes crazy and core data gets you know, like, you know, it's not uncommon for me to get a request from somebody that when I, you know, I ask them for the, the crash log and it comes back and I get the thing and it's just like, it's a core data error that just says the SQLite file has become is malformed and cannot be opened. Which and that happens all the time on iOS devices. Like it happens yeah. like if one of the biggest culprits is on iOS devices is if the disk runs out of space. Uh, then weird things can happen with your persistence layer, depending on how how it's done and what its settings are, and uh, and that it, it very frequently can corrupt SQLite databases. And it shouldn't, but in practice, it does. Uh, or things like you know sometimes like when writing to the app container, the the share container between ex extensions, sometimes those writes will just fail for some reason. Uh, or they'll be denied in some weird permissions error or something. And it's like, well, then, like, if a write fails to your persistence layer, then, like, that can also potentially corrupt the data that's there or something. And, and it's like, this stuff happens all the time. And it's so nice if you have the luxury to be able to have in your app code, as I do in Overcast, if the database file is corrupt, just delete it and resync everything from the server. 
Yeah, exactly. Because I think that, and that's the place where it's like persistence and like the really industrial grade persistence stuff gets, comes into play. Like I love that, you know, I've been, I've been using, I'm a Postgres guy. I mean, you know, you're a MySQL person, but like, I'm functionally it doesn't really matter. Well, it doesn't matter. Like, this is the thing. I don't care. They're both great. I'm just more, I've just been using Postgres for a long time. And so I know how to do it. But the thing is Postgres, like I've done some horrible things to Postgres databases and I've never lost data as a result. You know, I've had weird situations where, you know, sir, accidentally powered off the wrong server in the middle of something. And like it was in the middle of doing a migration and it, you know, had, it got canceled halfway. Like it's those types of systems are designed for this kind of recovery in a way that SQLite, which is at the end what most of the persistence schemes on device use, aren't. And so it's definitely something that I think now I'm leaning so much towards the, let's get this all onto a nice safe server somewhere with some really proper, you know, backup, some like, whereas I don't have to worry about like, it's not the users doing backups and restores. It's like, I'm doing backup and restore. I'm versioning the database. I'm making sure that everything is nice and safe in a way that on device, like you said, if something goes wrong, it's like, just say, Oh, I'm sorry. I need you to connect to the network so I can go grab the most recent version of this. And that level, like coding with that in mind, I think makes so many of these problems just go either go away or be so much less stressful. Yeah, because and you know the reality is like your customers will have you know what if their phone well before the iPhone seven what if it falls in a, in a toilet or something you know like sure. they they lose everything on their phone or their phone gets stolen or whatever their phone fails and they have to get a new one and they have to restore from backup well do they have a backup how old is that backup and, and like it, they the answers to those those questions might be bad for for the data and uh, and so if you just always have everything synced to a server somewhere that you can always restore back to the phone as soon as the user logs in and whether whether it's iCloud or your own stuff for this purpose it doesn't really matter that is such a better place to be than trying to rely on storing user data indefinitely just locally in the app, as you, as you said. Oh, sure. Because I mean, even for, and there's a couple of situations that I run into that are a bit trickier for me because uh, some of my apps use store health data. Um, and there's some very specific and complicated rules around storing health-related data. You know, I mean, it's not like health in the sense of diagnosing diseases, but it's, you know, steps um, sleep data, activity data, like these are things that fall broadly into the category of, of health, health data. And so I currently, I don't store any of those anywhere off device because if I had a server that had stored health data, suddenly there's all kinds of regulatory things that I don't really know about that I'm sure exist. And I really don't want to know about, um, that would start to come into play. And there's rules about you not using iCloud necessarily, um, but as a result, I, you know, I do a lot of my backup and restore using the either iTunes or iCloud backup system. And it sometimes doesn't work. Like there's just no two ways around it where sometimes someone doesn't update. You know, I've had a couple of these this last couple of weeks where someone up- updates to iOS 10, something goes weird in the update, they restore from the backup and the app state is just missing. And there's nothing I can do. Like, <laughs> That's horrible. It's, 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 there's nothing that I can do for that person. Um, and, you know, and so, but it's a, it's what a situation where I wish I did have a means to back that up um, externally because there is nothing better when you have, like, this has happened dozens of times with my recipe app where something happens to someone's device and they send an email that is just the, like, the panicked, like I've, you know, I have all of my family recipes in this app. I've been using it. I love it. You know, my kid threw the iPad out the window and it's shattered. 
and I didn't have a backup of the device. Like, is there, you know, is there anything that can be done? And it, there is the, it is just absolute, it is an absolute joy to be able to go into this, like go into the admin panel, verify that, you know, when I last, they, they last synced their system and be able to say to them, it's like, you know what? I have 267 recipes safe and sound. Whenever you get your new device, log in with your credentials and they'll all be back to you. Like that is amazing. That is that like you just made someone's day in for what was uh, otherwise was going to be a really, really bad day. I, I love that we we chose to do this episode on like the local persistence schemes that you use in your app. And meanwhile, our conclusion is don't rely on them for anything. <laughs> That's true. But I think that is in some ways the point. This is where yeah. I've been going to more and more. It's like there's it's you can so easily get focused on what is the best local scheme for doing this. Um, and and the more and more of this I do, the less and less I think that storing data on device is a good idea for most apps. That I think most apps benefit from instead of having their data locally, pushing it somewhere else. Where they, like you said, whether that's iCloud, whether that's your own servers, whatever. Um, the, the more that you can push your data somewhere else and then be pulling it down as needed, the better you're going to be. Because there's just so many issues that you're going to run into otherwise. And if you do want to run your own servers... <laughs> Our sponsor this week is perfectly timed. It's Linode. So Linode Linode is a wonderful web host with high-performance Linux SSD servers spread across eight data centers around the world. They're a fantastic solution for your server infrastructure. Linode offers servers that you can get up and running in just under a minute with plans starting at just $10 a month. And that that now gets you two gigs of RAM for 10 bucks a month. So that could be, I mean, look, these servers are powerful. These are really fast. We use them. I, I, I have, I think, 12 Linode instances that I run Overcast on, plus one from Arthur.org, plus one for some accessory stuff. I have lots of Linodes. I bet most apps could get away with the $10 a month plan for all of their user data. <laughs> it's really, you get a lot for the money here. Anyway, um, Linode is great for other tasks. Also, things like if you want to run your own private Git server, if you want to host large databases uh, like 267 recipes, if you want to run a mail server, if you want to operate powerful apps, and so much more. With industry-leading native SSD storage and access to a 40 gigabit network, you will have all the power you need to, to get your tasks done at Linode. Now, if you're a listener of this show sign up at linode.com slash radar you'll not only be supporting us but you'll also get twenty dollars towards any linode plan you can also use code radar 20 at checkout uh, to get that same deal so there's a seven day money back guarantee there's nothing to lose go to linode.com spelled like linux but linode linode.com slash radar to learn more sign up and take advantage of that twenty dollar credit or use promo code radar 20 at checkout thank you so much to linode for supporting this show so I think it's worth also mentioning, like, you know, you mentioned at the end of the last segment about how it's actually becoming more and more useful to not store anything on the device and just always fetch it from the server. You know, back back when, when I first started developing, which was Instapaper back then, you know, offline access was a big deal, especially for that app. You know, that was kind of the point of it, and that was a, that was a major feature of it. But I, And I think, you know, over time, we've slowly had times in which we are offline have slowly eroded out of people's lives. And they're still there. There are still occasions where people are offline. But that is getting really few and far between. I mean, now, you know, even... You can now even use devices on planes during takeoff and landing. You can be online for the entire middle part of the flight if you want to, and that's only going to get more and more common over time. Uh, a lot of like subways, like you know, underground uh, transit systems uh, where there was no reception 10 years ago, they're starting to get cell reception, cell coverage in a lot of them now. Uh, there's you know, more and more areas where people have more and more connectivity. And 
offline access is is one of the only reasons why you would store data locally for for a lot of server-backed apps and i think it's very reasonable for a lot of apps today to just be like sorry we don't work offline because the the actual demand for getting the app to work offline is just shrinking dramatically over time yeah i think that's there's something to to it's changing the user's ex- expectations and it changes from a persistence problem to a caching problem because um, i think of even an app say like the app uh, like instagram right or tweetbot i think is another app that's sort of like this where you have these apps that are essentially server-based you know th- what you're showing by its by its nature is somewhat time bound and so you're always going to want to get the latest stuff and my expectation for that app though is that when i open it if i'm offline that something reasonable happens i don't just get you know it's not just like frowny face sorry um when said what i see in you know like both of those apps is they show some kind of cache um of whatever it is like it's the last data that they showed you it's some kind some version of that and i think that it's a difference in framing but i think that is a significant difference in user expectation where if you change if you can change the mindset from true persistence from it being a peer with um, your server to being just a sort of sort of a dumb client that does caching and it's not persistence really it's just caching um, you know, cache, you know, caching is certainly a problem. You know, it's what it, it's what they always say. It's the, one of the three uh, biggest problems in computer science is cache invalidation. It's not an easy problem necessarily, but it's something that is definitely more straightforward. Whereas if you always assume that the server is in charge and you can reasonably have access to it most of the time, you get away with it. You cache and show whatever you last had otherwise. Um, and I've definitely built apps where sometimes this can get, even get really, really simple. And this is, I love when an app can, like, there's a really easy, elegant solution for something like this, where if your app just persists, JSON, you know, or downloads JSON and shows it to the user, well, why don't you just go ahead and cache your JSON requests as you do them? And you can use exactly the same logic if you're offline as you, when you're online to just load your last, the last JSON blob that you had and display that to your user. Like you don't even need persistence in a way of you know there's some kind of complicated mapping that's st- turning it into something else. It's like nope, it all just starts at the end of the day. It's, it's like it all is just these these plain text files at the end, which maybe is a, it's another analog to where um, with like blogging or any of these systems where if you can ultimately end up just with plain text, you're almost always on the right path. Well, also like you know like that that approach of just using cached things from a server. You can you can often get exactly what you need from that with just the built-in NSURL cache system that's in every re- that that you can access from every network request on iOS. Like there is this entire caching layer. Like you know, if people who make network requests, you ever wonder what that caching policy option does? Well, it turns out if you dive deeply into that, there is a lot of control you have. You can basically customize the entire layer, customize every request. You don't even have to control the API. You can modify the cache behavior of requests as they come in. Uh, like you can, there's so much you can do with just effectively basic HTTP caching and you know basic cache invalidation headers, like you know the expires headers and e tags and stuff like that. And that's all built in. So you don't even necessarily have to think about where you know do i need to write this file to disk in a certain spot you know how do i expire this data no you can let the system handle it for you there's tons of functionality built in just by using the built-in url loading system sure and that's even better like i mean that sounds like a wonderful thing i mean now that you're saying that i'm like man i've been i've been doing this the wrong way for a little bit because (laughs) i tend to write the files to disk but 
yeah, like any the the less that you can do, the better. That like if yeah, if you can just say you know, hey, keep around the last version of a of a request you made, or like you say, when you start to get into e tags and expires headers and things that are in like purpose built for this purpose, that you you're not having to build anything for it. Like yours, and there's a, if you have a well behaved web service, it probably is doing a lot of this for you anyway. Um, the ability to do this kind of stuff that you can then just not worry about it. And your app just makes a request. And if you're offline, you get the cache data. And if you're online, you get the fresh data um, and, you know, don't worry about it. And you've got to be careful. Certainly as with all these things, like I, I notice this when I travel um, internationally is usually when I notice when I run into this kind of issue where you start to really notice which apps do a good job of handling poor connectivity situations or not no connectivity situations. But the reality is you can't if you if you worry about those edge cases too much, you'll end up making your app worse overall, I think. And so being careful about not getting too worried, you know, it's like, well, what if someone's going on an epic you know, expedition and they're going to be, you know, not connected to the Internet for a week, for a week at a time? What, should they still be able to use the app? It's like, well, maybe. I don't know. It's like if you have a really compelling reason, great. But if you don't, like don't don't end over engineer it just because you think you maybe should or could. Right, because any of that engineering not only does it take a lot of time and energy that you could be spending on features, but it also introduces tons of bug potential. So the you know the the least persistence you can do, the better. And and you know I I think your your example there is great. It's like if someone's going to be out like away from connectivity for a while. Well, is your app really that useful to somebody if if everything in it is stale anyway? Like it depends on the app. If it's something like uh, like a podcast player, yes, people can load up on podcasts and live off them for weeks. But if it's something like a Twitter client, no, that's that's not going to be useful to them. Um, so you know, it depends on the app. But I think the answer for most apps is probably you don't really need to worry about it. Exactly. All right. Well, we're out of time this week. Thank you everybody for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>